Good morning, saints. Do I need to turn this one off? We're good? Okay. Good morning, saints. Might yet and still need to turn this one off. Is that better? Okay. I am so happy to be here with you all, and I'm so happy that you're here with us today. Um, If you haven't met me yet, my name is uh, Trey Stevens. I have a beautiful wife named Katrina Stevens. We started attending CLC uh, a little over five years ago, and we've been blessed. Um, Such a blessing to be with you, and it's also a blessing to open God's word and the continue of the worship of this awesome God that we worship. And so a quick reflection on, uh, on Exodus. So we're in Exodus 33. Um, And God has rescued a people. God has called and rescued a people from slavery out of Egypt. And he's brought them back to him, back to the mountain, what we call the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Uh, They have turned away from from God as Moses was on the mountain for 40 days to to worship an idol uh, that Justin explained for us last week. And this is the aftermath of that. Uh, There's been a just punishment. Moses has gone back up the mountain to say, "Let, let me see if I can atone for your sins, Lord Uh, graciously told him no, that he could not atone for their sins personally. And so we're in the aftermath of this. So we're we're sitting um, at the foot of a mountain, uh, two million Israelites sitting at the foot of a mountain waiting for the response of a just and holy God for the sin that they've committed. And so the question that I'd like to to ask us today, Justin asked a question this morning, do you long for happiness and joy? Do you long for happiness and joy? And the, the question that I would like to actually guide us is, do you believe that the path to happiness and joy is only through the presence of God's Holy Spirit? Do you believe that the path to joy and peace is only truly had through the presence of God? In order to find this out today, we'll need much more than my stammering tongue, so let's go to the Lord Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this people. We thank you that you have purpose to rescue and redeem a people. Um, And Lord, we pray that Lord, we thank you that you did much with Moses' stammering tongue. So, Lord, I pray that you would do the same today, that you would make the sermon heard far greater than the one that is preached. And we know that the Holy Spirit um, is powerful to do all of these things. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm helped by uh, Fred Zaspel, who writes on the relation of the events of World War II to the Christian life. Um, You may have heard of what we call an already not yet reality that we say we as Christians live in. Um, This reality can be perplexing and confusing at times, knowing that we are promised victory in the end, but being required to have faith and perseverance in the meantime, while the victory isn't fully realized. So Zaspel writes this, quote, students of World War II have often remarked that although VE Day was not until May 8, 1945, in a very real sense, the war in Europe was over on June 6, 1944. In what they call Operation Overlord, some 1,000 ships, the largest armada to ever set sail, carried some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France, where they stormed the coast of Normandy. It was only the beginning of a military buildup that Germany could have never stopped. Anyone watching objectively knew that that it was only a matter of time, not if, but when. The amassing of such military personnel and material, the relentless crushing of German factories from American aircraft, and the ever-narrowing of Germany's supply lines, all this declared that the difference between D-Day and the day of victory, V-E Day, was only a matter of time. And for this reason, it was said that on June 6, 1944, the war was over. I suspect, however, that this rather academic assessment of things differed greatly from the perspective of the soldiers on the ground. They were still dodging bullets and all manner of military force. They were bleeding, bleeding, wounded, and many were still dying. And there were still many harrowing days of the war yet to be endured, even some setbacks. It was not that our soldiers in France were unaware of the significance of Normandy. I'm very sure they understood it well. And this understanding doubtless gave them great encouragement. But from the day-to-day experience of things, the war was still very much in full swing. The dangers were many, and they were everywhere. As Aspel says, I can't recall where I first heard this analogy in its various forms, but in the circles of Christian scholarship, this basic observation is traced back to one Oscar Kuhlman. He says, there is something about all of this that is a close resemblance to the Christian experience. God himself has invaded history. He came as one of us to our rescue and has fought the decisive battle of war already. In his death and resurrection, Christ has obtained eternal redemption for us, it says in Hebrews 9. Final victory has been secured. He has made full and final satisfaction for our sins, having having successfully completed the work that saves 
He has triumphed over Satan. And it says now, in John 12, it says, now, this, now is the ruler of this world cast out. The works of the devil are destroyed. And Christ has forever secured his elect people for his eternal life, as it says in John 6, 38. Amen. Yes, and amen. But, and again, it doesn't always seem that way. We are caught up in a real battle. Our adversary walks about like a hungry lion trying to eat us, and our constant struggles are struggles against him. He takes people captive. He is powerfully deceptive, masquerading even as an angel of light. Satan is alive and well. Like Hitler, who knew his time was all but, yet, all but up, yet launching his last great hurrah at the cost of so many of his soldiers, Satan, too, knowing his time is short, is on a furious rampage. He's on a furious rampage against all the people of Christ, seeking to do all the damage that he can. And we, the people of Christ, safe though we are in Christ, we feel it. And there are casualties. From the perspective of the trenches, the war is still on. Sin, temptation, suffering, injustice, sickness, death, loneliness, disappointment, failure. There are injuries and casualties of all kinds. Satan hinders us, and so does the world. And so does our flesh. And Christians in the trenches, if we're not careful, we can lose perspective. We must never lose, lose sight of the fact that we struggle in hope and in certainty of final victory. Redemption has been accomplished. It may not have yet been fully applied. There may be skirmishes still, but it is heartening indeed as we recall that D-Day is actually behind us and we are assured that V-E Day is ahead. The redemption that Christ accomplished for us will, be, will yet be ours in full experience with him. End quote. And so if all of this is true, if we've been redeemed and our D-Day is behind us, but our victory is assured ahead of us, what is it that we need most in light of this already but not yet reality? What is it that we need most in the trenches of despair? What is it that will carry us from here into eternity? I would argue that Moses in scripture here is clear. And it says that what we need most is the exact same thing that the Israelites and Moses needed most in the wilderness. The power-filled presence of God, which is both revealed by and attested through his promises, and his purposes. Beloved, I would dare say that the powerful presence of God can only be fully known through his purposes and promises, which are revealed to us through his holy word. And so there are three points that I'll use to guide us today, and because I'm a disorganized man, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you on the forefront. I have three, and I already named them. We have God's purposes, we have God's promises, and God's powerful presence. Okay? God's purposes, his promises, his powerful presence. If I'm not clear when I'm going from one point to another, that's what we're going to, okay? We'll, we'll return to the purposes, promises, and the powerful presence of God. So first, the purposes of God. From cover to cover, throughout scripture, we see two clear, two of God's purposes, very clear. And one of them is to display his glory, and the other is for the good of his people. We see in Romans 8, 28, this very clearly. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so although we know this, and many of us maybe have, have heard this before, we might miss how God is doing that here in this passage. So if we're not careful, uh, we, we might miss how God is actually working the good of his people and, and um, and uh, defending his glory and displaying his glory to his people. Um, I definitely did. It's the first time I was reading through, especially as I went through uh, the passage of the tent of meeting, right? So that's, if you have your Bibles and you have it open to Exodus 33, the verse I'm talking about starting, starting in verse 7. And so we see this uh, um, almost seems like an interruption or an in interjection into the passage, this tent of meeting. Uh, you're reading along and and it's, it's a conversation between God and Moses and, and, and Moses. And God tells Moses that, you know, my presence will not go with you, which we'll discuss here in a moment. Um, but then directly after, it seems like there's this interjection into the passage. Um, and I would argue that the tent of meeting isn't an interjection, but it actually shows the grace of God. It further elucidates on the, on the promises and purposes of God. And so starting in verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. 
this tent of meeting description, which um, it would have been an actual tent, right? Um, maybe not even constructed specifically to be the tent of meeting. It might have been an extra tent Moses had lying around, but it's what he specifically used for the tent of meeting. And so we, um, we learn in Joshua 34, actually, that this tent would have been about 2,000 cubits away from the rest of the camp. 2,000 cubits means nothing to any of you, but a football field most of you have seen. It's about a football field away, 3,000 feet. And so about 3,000 feet, if you can imagine with me, we're at the base of a mountain. There's 2.4 estimated million, 2.4 million estimated Israelites at the foot of this mountain. It's a lot of, a lot of people. So we, we, we can imagine, I think um, Bob painted a great picture of a, of a tent city. Uh, we just see tents as far as we can see. But off in the distance, about a football fields away, we would see one singular tent. This would be the the tent of meeting. This would be the temporary tabernacle, the temporary meeting place where Moses would, would meet with God. And so there's somewhere between 30,000 and 500,000 at least tents close together, and then we see this one far off. And we think this tent was likely used to settle disputes and worship God corporately as it, and is seen far off from the camp actually to show God's gracious withdrawal from his people. See, at first this might seem as a punishment. It comes right in the aftermath of the golden calf where God's Anger burned hot against the Israelites, and, and so did Moses. But this is actually God showing his grace. For if a holy, powerful God comes in contact with a sinful creature while they're still living, it would mean certain death, a decimation. So this is a grace of God. It further explains the preceding verses where it talks about God's presence and his, his, um, his presence not going with him. So now when Moses would meet with God, we can imagine two, it says specifically that they would stand at their tent door. So two million people standing at the tent door, worshiping God and watching intently from a football field away, seeing a pillar of cloud over a tent door. Um, and why is this section actually helpful rather than an interjection? Well, I believe that God is showing his purposes. He's revealing his purposes. And this intimate purpose is to dwell with his people, even amongst their sinful disposition. Isn't this how our gracious God deals with us Christians? His desire to dwell in our midst, even when we choose to give our time, talents, and treasures to things he has created before giving them for the kingdom of God. No matter how many times we, we have to repent for our sins, we know the one who sits on the mercy seat hears our cries, rev reveals his purposes, forgives us, and desires to dwell with us still. Dwelling with his people is what God foreordained to be the method of displaying his glory and for the good of his people. It says clearly in Jeremiah 32, 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isn't this the definition of redemption? That our, even in our sinful condition, he would make himself known of no necessity to himself and draw us to himself, becoming our heavenly father and we his beloved children. So when these purposes of God are revealed to us in scripture, why is it that we have trouble trusting in the, in the purposes of God? Well, sometimes to us, the purposes of God seem unclear. Part of the problem is our misunderstanding of the purposes of God in light of the particulars of our lives. Sometimes we look at our lives and have trouble understanding how he is using the specifics, the problems, the troubles, the strife in our life to accomplish his purposes. And we are too quick to come to the conclusion that these particulars just don't match up with his purpose. He can't be working out his good purposes if this is happening in my life. But the true problem is that we either don't understand his purposes, we haven't studied them, or most commonly, I believe, that we simply do not trust in him or in his purposes. So what is it we do when we begin to question God's purposes in light of our struggles? Well, we can cry out to him in our uncertainty just as Moses did. Moses said, Right here, see you say to me, bring up this people, starting in verse 12, if you're not there. See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and, and, also you have found, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses is saying, I, I don't get it. You say that you... You're for our good, and, and, you, and, you, and you say that you're for your glory, but then you say your presence won't go with us. How would that be for our good and for your glory? He's crying out to God in uncertainty, and can't we relate? 
whenever we look at our lives and we see the struggles and it doesn't match up with his purposes, we can cry out to God. Moses is saying, show me more of your, showing me, show me more of your purposes that I may have peace knowing your will and obey it. That's why he says, show me your ways. The right response to the revelation of the purposes of God is obedience. Obedience out of love. We know that the, in the revelations of his purposes, he is always consistent. So in the revelations of his purposes, we will know more of his presence, more of his power, more of his goodness, and we can trust in him. So Exodus 33 shows us the importance of understanding the purposes of God, but it also displays the importance and dependability of the promises of God. So this leads us to our second point. I actually remembered. Second point is the promises of God. And so I would argue that God is quick here in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture to remind the Israelites of his fulfilled promises, right, in the past to give them hope. He tells them of his current promises to remind them and give them peace. And so that when he reminds him, them of the future promises, they would look to the past promises which have been fulfilled, the current promises of peace that they now feel, and that they would believe that he would faithfully uphold all the promises that he says he will in the future. And so that his people would confidently say, our God will surely do all that he says, and I will trust him. We see this in Exodus 20, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. God reminds the Israelites that first, he saved and delivered them from slavery. He delivered on his promises. So now, directly after that, when he gives his commandments, they would know that he's not commanding them to obey out of a sense of his pure power and might, but he desires that they would obey out of, out of love, out of love for what he has already done for them. And Christians... When we are reminded of God's commands, what is it that comes to our mind first? Do we feel a weighty sense of, of guilt or, um, or maybe a dutiful obligation when we are reminded of, reminded of uh, the commandments of God? Or are we reminded of the goodness of our God and the love for what he has done? And that, does that drive us to obey gladly, knowing that the command is good because the giver of the command is good? Amen? The giver of the commandment is good. Exodus 33 also begins with a counting of a promise here in this passage. God says, To the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, reminding Moses of his future promise. Again and again, the Israelites uh, make decisions and assumptions based on the situations around them rather than the promises of their deliverer. Now imagine with me David and Goliath. What good would it have done for David to stare intensely at the might of Goliath, his, his biceps, his triceps, his quads, and, and to see how tall he was? What good would it have done for him to stare intensely at the problem before him, knowing that the presence of God was with him? He didn't. In 1 Samuel 17, 17, 37, it says, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will surely deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Church, what good does it do for our souls to obsess over the light affliction when we know it fails and pales in comparison to the promises that God says we will be justified, we will be glorified with him. We should remember that our present problems are nothing compared to the perfect promises of our God. You see, throughout the wilderness, through the plagues, the waiting, the wanting, even in the trenches, Moses believed in the promises of God, regardless of what problems surrounded him. God had been gracious to Moses, revealing his promises and his purposes each time that Moses experienced God's presence. Moses had seen unimaginable promises and purposes fulfilled through the past 30 chapters since he first encountered God at this very mountain. And this, the belief in God's promises, the faith that God is good, is why Moses comes to both his problems and the presence of his God with boldness, knowing that the God of mercy has revealed his purposes and promises that he will surely bring good things to pass. So just as the Israelites or the allied soldiers of World War II, we Christians too experience seemingly insurmountable problems, pain, strife in this life. And I would argue that we too have sinful responses to these stimuli rather than righteous responses, and that this is due to our neglect and not the, the neglect or the faithlessness of Christ. 
when the Israelites looked around them and they saw the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian chariots on the other, seeing what they thought to be inescapable death and defeat, they lost sight of God's perfect power and promises and trusted in their circumstance. When they grew weary and questions God planned for them, when they, were, they surrounded Aaron and demanded a physical idol of which they could look to and find hope and peace in times of their uncertainty, while Moses was up on the mountain, again, unrighteous response from God's people. We've all most likely heard of the natural fear responses, fight or flight. So when we are weary from work or weary from disciplining our child over and over again, or children, maybe you're tired of being disciplined over and over and over again. When we are heartbreaking because of hard relation, heartbroken because of hard relationships, we're tired of doctor's visits and the fear of another bad diagnosis. When we are between jobs and we're on our 12th final interview and we're starting to feel hopeless, how is it that we respond? Do we fight against God's purposes and flee from his presence in shame? Or as we are commanded, do we fight against the flesh and flee from our sinful desires, remembering God's powerful presence, promises, and purposes? I'd contend that there's actually a third response. Uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Don't you've ever seen me in a fight? That's a ladder for me. Moses realized that the right response to this dreadful revelation that God's presence wasn't going forward with them was to stop in his tracks and freeze. And he petitioned for the presence of God to accompany them as he knew that there was no cause for hope without the presence of the heavenly father. So here Moses didn't fight or flee. He remembered the purposes and the promises of God and knew that they were only to be fulfilled through his powerful presence and to the glory of his name. This response was actually pleasing to the Lord as it sought his glory. So church, if we are to have a righteous response to the presence of God, to our problems, if we were to have any hope at all in the trenches of this life, when all circumstances seem bigger, when all of our circumstances seem bigger than our Savior, we must grasp what Moses grasped. We must desire what it is that Moses desired here in Exodus 33, that God's ways would be shown to us and that his glory would be revealed to us, that we may obey him and love him all of our days. So we see in the beginning of Exodus 33, God is reiterating his purposes and promises to Moses and it would have been very familiar to Moses as he's heard many of these commandments, purposes, and promises before. It's the same exact verbiage that he used earlier in Exodus. It would have sounded as if God was beginning the recounting of something that he had already said. I imagine as Moses began hearing, starting in verse 1, his heart is elated. It's almost as if he's hearing the sweet sound of the doxology. And as the song begins, he's probably recounting the next line in his head. But God ends the first stanza with a very short addendum. Starting in verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I, which is a, a fulfilled promise, <laughs> from the land of Egypt, sorry, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the part, don't miss it. For I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Just a, just a short addendum. All, all the rest was the same, but just right there, for I will not go up in your midst. You see, it was, it, was, it was as if God was saying to Moses, take your people, go on to the land that I've promised you, take all of the blessings of God, but you will not have me. For us church, those who are believers, it would be as if God was asking you right now, would you take all of my blessings of heaven, of the afterlife, of joy, of peace, of righteousness, and none of me. Would you take the promised land before you would take the promised Lord? Even the Israelites knew this to be a disastrous addendum as they heard of this and, and they heard that God commanded them to strip themselves of the plunder of gold that, uh, from Egypt that God allowed them to have and yet they had used to manage uh, and, and fashion a, a more uh, manageable God a calf. And so we see the Israelites, they stripped their ornaments off from, this, from Mount Horeb onward. This was a sign of repentance. There was an outward expression of an inward change. So if God's presence is the people's greatest blessing and God is seeking the good of his people, why on earth 
would God say that his presence would not go with his people? As I'm reading the passage, even I, like Moses, am thinking, is God God changing the plan? Is God, it says right here in verse four, verse three, I will not go with you. Later on in the verse we read that the same thing that Elaine wrote, read, we, he will go with you and he will give you rest. Is God changing his plans or his mind? I think Justin uh, elocuted this perfectly last week. Um, and we saw this again in Exodus 32, the threat that God was withholding good from his people. This threat is actually an invitation to ask that, uh, an invitation for us to ask that he would actually give us that good thing. And this is exactly what he is again inviting Moses to do to intercede on behalf of his people, to petition for his powerful presence. So when we are uncertain, how can we be sure that God will fulfill his purposes? Well, we can look, as the Israelites did, to the fulfilled, uh, the fulfilled promises of the past, where God is promising that he will go before the Israelites and secure a land for them in which they're able to worship him and have all that they need. He, te- he details throughout Exodus how he will carefully drive out the people before them with hornets, and he will slowly do so as to not destroy the land they are promised. So we see clearly that God is faithfully revealing his purposes and his promises to his people so as to give them hope and reassurance that he will fulfill them. So let's go to scripture and see how, um, how he fulfilled these specific pro- uh, promises for Israel. So Joshua 24, you don't have to flip it to it. It's very long, but if you don't trust me, I would suggest you flip to Joshua 24. Let's read it together. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan. And I, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and Esau I gave the hill, uh, the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Fulfilled promise. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. Fulfilled promise. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. Then I sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Sorry, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities which you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land in which you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these, those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amor- Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. End quote. God fulfilled every promise to the Israelites down to the finite details of hornets going before them. Church, won't he do the same for us? This God that rescues, redeems, makes his purposes and his promises known will deliver on every single promise. So what are some of the promises of God? 
for his people, God promises his powerful presence will be with us. We see this throughout scripture, but I gave a couple of examples. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Hebrews 13.5, he himself has said, I will leave, never leave nor forsake you. Genesis 28.15, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am, the, I am the God of your father and Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. Genesis uh, it was Genesis 26, 24, I'm sorry. 26, 28, 15 actually says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we can see, church, clearly throughout Scripture that God promises to be with us, strengthening, strengthening us to carry out his purposes in the fulfillment of his promises. And so later on in the passage when God said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy upon who I'll show mercy, this was a revelation of both his purposes and his promise. He promised to be gracious and in his grace he saves us, he redeems us, he refines us and ultimately brings him to himself, back to himself, just as he brought Moses back to himself at the Mount Sinai. In this instance, the presence of God is revealing the purposes of God and promising that he will bring them to pass. This is what it is for God to proclaim his name. It is to preach of his goodness to a people who desperately need that from him. So the Lord promises goodness to each and every believer from the point of our D-Day, the point of our salvation, until far beyond our V-Day, our victory day. Amen. Marvin Sapp, quoting a songwriter, put it this way about the promises of God and the struggles of life. You can't wait until the situation is over to bless the name of the Lord. We call those praisers conditional praisers. But there are certain individuals that got crazy faith that even though they are looking at the obstacle before them, they will not allow what they see to hinder what they believe. So in the trenches, church, believe in the promises of God, even in the face of your obstacles, knowing that he is all-powerful, all good, and that he will bring all of his promises to pass without fail. And so we've talked about the purposes of God briefly, the promises of God briefly. There are more purposes and promises of God. Um, but I would argue that regardless of the amount that we know about the purposes of God, the amount that we can glean from the promises of God, all of this is meaningless to us. It would be of no good without the perfect, powerful presence of God. So this is the final point, point three. Might be a little bit of a longer point, but this is the powerful presence of God. And so what, what do we know about the presence of God? Well, as we said, um, Acts 2.38 actually tells us clearly, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we know that God's presence is a gift and that we will receive it upon salvation so that when we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Christ, we are indwelt with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, as soon as I say spirit, there's an uneasiness in the room a little bit, right? Uh, it's typically some hesitation when we talk too much about the spirit of God. And I think this is actually for good reason. I would argue that... Um, and I think scripture would argue that seeking the spirit of God or, or some spirit outside of the word of God is a dangerous practice. Many people seek a word from God or some spirit listening to voices or signs in their, from, from heaven or from somewhere and then claim that this vision or, or voice was from God, even if it contradicts what God has said about himself in scripture. So I want to be very clear then when I talk about seeking the presence of God or the Holy Spirit of God, this is mutually inclusive, inextricably connected to the word of God. And so we see in John 14, 27, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we know that the Holy Spirit does these things as well, it brings righteousness, peace, joy, his presence is all striking and fear-inducing. And every time in Scripture that a sinful creature comes in contact with the, the presence of God, even in its veiled glory, there is fear. But we as Christians, knowing the power of God, 
the dominion over all things and that he is on our side, it allows us to boldly say that if he is for us, what can stand against us? So God's presence to the believer, it is with us, it is holy, it causes righteousness, joy, and peace, and it is a necessity. Moses says here in Exodus 33 to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. I think this clearly relates to John 15, 5, where it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So God's presence is with us. It is holy. It gives us peace. It's all powerful. And apart from his presence, we can do absolutely nothing. The right response of this believer is to ask, well, how is it that I can partake of more of this holy presence? And this is what Moses asked. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I, don't, I hope we're not misunderstanding what Moses is asking for here. It doesn't, he's not asking for some new miraculous sign. He's not saying, as many of unbelievers do, and maybe we did in our unbelief, God, show me a sign. Come down from heaven. Let me see that you are real. No. Moses is asking for God to reveal his ways, concrete ways, that he may know how to rightly respond to both the presence of, the, the presence of God, the promises of God, the purposes of God, and his strife and struggles. Moses did not desire to know that his God was near him and enabling him to carry out his promises. And so we have the assurance of God's presence in verse 14 to Moses. He said, my presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. So he promised Moses his presence. We also see various places in scripture where he promises us his presence. Um, we, we've counted a few before, and here we can say in Hebrews 13:5 says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And so if the revelation of the spirit is a gift that only God can give, why does it say in scripture that Moses specifically found favor in the sight of the Lord. I don't know if anyone upon reading that maybe gave them some pause. That word favor is chen. It could be re rendered grace as well. And I think uh, looking at the whole of Exodus, we could see clearly that Moses may have followed the Lord's commands and even trusted in his promises along the way, but it was not Moses that drew near to God. It was God that drew Moses to himself. When Moses asks to see the glory of God here in this passage, God responds that he will show him all of his goodness and will proclaim his name to him. I believe that God is preaching to Moses. This is the basis of the theology of God to Moses. And it is that the proclamation of his name is the same as his glory and his goodness. The proclamation of his name is, is equal to the, his glory and his goodness. And so we ask, well, how do we partake of more of this presence? How do we experience the presence of God? Well, the only way that Moses in this passage was able to experience the veiled portion of the glory of God was in the cleft of a rock. This cleft of the rock protected him, enabled him to behold what he could of God's glory, of his back and his hand. And I would argue that we all need the exact same thing. If we are to experience the presence of God, if we are to behold his goodness and his glory, we have to be placed into a cleft of the rock. We need protection. We need a cave that would come around us and protect us. And that cleft of the rock is Christ. Christ alone qualifies us and enables us to behold the glory of God. Because of Christ's finished work, the Holy Spirit illuminates the words of the Bible to us and enables us to understand, believe, and obey. Jesus himself says that he is the only way in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the only way to experience the presence of the Lord is through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you haven't experienced the presence of the Lord, I would greatly encourage you to run to Christ. In order to experience the spirit and the presence of God, we must go to his holy word, and pray that the Holy Spirit would have it illuminated to us. And so after we, we, we trust and we, we believe God's promises, we, we trust in his purposes, what is the evidence in our life that we have the Holy Spirit? 
If you were to ask the youth, they would all recount by memory Galatians 5.22. No, I'm just kidding. But they would say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things, there is no such law. They would also say, I think, um, that it's hope. It says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God's presence fills us with hope and joy and causes us to remember the hope of an eternity with him, singing arm in arm with one another about the glories of our good God. We would also have glad-hearted obedience to God's purposes with the presence of God. It says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 says, for unbelievers in the presence of God, it is a very different thing. It says that inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. There are many responses to the presence of God from unbelievers, but I believe one of the prevailing responses of today and maybe of the past as well is apathy is a complete ignoring of the presence of God. My question would be to those who don't even think on the presence of God, who don't consider it, who push it to the wayside, what is your hope? What is your hope in life and death? I would argue that all those who haven't trusted in God for their hope in life and death believe this humanist phrase or at least abide by it with their lives. This humanist phrase that um, is very popular, it goes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is your hope, unbeliever. This is the hope of living for self, apathetic to the presence of God. There is no lasting joy, no purpose in pain and suffering, only ultimate hopelessness. And I want to acknowledge that in some sense, your apathy is reasonable. It may even be logical. The requirements of the Christian life are not attractive to the unbeliever. Reading the word, worshiping God, singing his praises. Put another way, you're apathetic to the presence of God because you have not tasted and seen that he is good. Because once you do, the requirements of the Christian life will no longer become burdensome. They will become your heart's greatest joy and greatest desire to study the purposes of God, the promises of God, all while being enlightened by the people in the presence of God. This would be your greatest joy. Oh, what a joy it is. A true and lasting joy that lasts far beyond the grave, far beyond VE day, and is only supplied by the presence and the spirit of God. And in his grace and in his mercy, he says, I will show mercy upon who I will show mercy, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. The way the Lord describes himself, he starts with mercy. He starts with grace. Isn't it a wonder that a holy God would ever find favor or grace in a sinful creature like myself? This is the wonder of redemption. This is the sovereignty of God put on full display. And how does he describe his sovereignty in this passage? By expressing to Moses that he is merciful and just and that he will be gracious of his own accord. So when we, uh, so we see that the presence of God should strike joy and peace in all those who God has redeemed and saved. But throughout scripture, whenever a sinful creature comes in contact with the presence of the Lord, it strikes fear. That is because God's presence is rest for the believer, as it says here in Exodus, but only judgment for the unbeliever, as it says here in Matthew 12. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. 
The scripture is very clear here that we have all sinned. So it says in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, sin is choosing anything outside of God's purposes, his promises, his commands. It's whenever we seek to do things for ourselves and seek our own glory rather than choosing to do the right thing to do for the glory of the one who rightly deserves it, God. So, to my non-Christian brothers and sisters or those that even are unsure wrestling with your salvation. I want you to know that each time we sin, each time we covet, we lie, we lust, we place creation over creator, we are sinning against a holy and just God. We are running up a tab on a bill we are wholly unequipped to pay. You see, Paul tells us later in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, and not just this early death that we will all experience, but it is a death of the soul being separated forever from the only source of joy and peace, the presence of our God. But, praise God, there's a but. But because of the great love of this creator, he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who set aside the fullness of his glory to be born in a manger, to live a sinless life, to die on a wooden stake and conquer conquer death three days later, to rise victorious from the grave. You see, just as the Israelites needed Moses to intercede on their behalf, we too need someone to intercede on our behalf. But it's not just that. We need so much more. We need a spotless substitute. This is the only way that sinful creatures like us can partake of the powerful presence of the holy God. We needed God in human form to pay the debt that we could not pay. In order to know the presence of God, we, like Moses, needed to be placed in the cleft of the rock to protect our sinful selves from experiencing the fullness of the holy God. So, the difference between Moses as the intercessor for Israel who could not atone for sins and our sinless Savior is that Jesus didn't have to be put into the cleft of the rock. He is the rock. Praise God. He did not need need to climb Mount Sinai to behold a veiled version of the Lord's goodness in his presence, but rather our intercessor is the exact representation of the Father. And he said to his Father, restore me to the glory that we had before the foundations of the earth. Do you see the difference? The difference between our intercessor and their intercessor is that Christ, of no necessity to himself, condescended to his creation and came down the mountain in order to intercede on our behalf, fulfilling the law, the prophets, and ultimately fulfilling God's restoration of Eden when he returns and resurrects the dead, making, old, making new what is old and allowing unfettered access to the Father who, who will surely wipe away every tear. And so non-Christian, if you will entrust your life and soul to Christ Jesus today, repent of your sins and follow him, you too, can partake in the soul-refining rest and the perfect promises of our Father. You can search the word and be delighted by his promises and reminded of his powerful presence. And the sweetest part is that we, upon our salvation, get to partake of this presence, be encouraged by his glory, and carried through our affliction by the hands of our God, safely to reside in him, with him, and in him throughout eternity. The promise, this is the promise of our good and faithful Father. So upon reading the context of Romans 6, as we, uh, we just read 623, if, if we can hear the other flip side of that coin starting in verse 22, it says, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but, praise God for the but, the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It would be the joy of any member here, elder, member, to speak to you about what it means to accept Christ and and partake of this soul-refining rest. Okay, saints, now that you've heard enough from me, let's um, dive into a little bit of application, and then we'll close. Now, the application points are going to be the same points as the first three points. Promises of God, purposes of God, powerful presence of God. As we read through scripture, let us highlight the promises of our God. Let's highlight the fulfillment of the promises of our God. Let us memorize scriptures that remind us of these promises and their fulfillment. 
And church, we should remind one another in the darkest times, in the times where our obstacles seem too insurmountable, that we are assured our ultimate day of victory. VE day is ahead. Second application point, the purposes of our God. Let us remind each other that, the God, that God is using our light and momentary affliction to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. The affliction that we have now is light compared to the eternal weight of glory. Moses' desire after spending 40 days on top of the mountain with the Lord is that he would be shown more of God's ways and his presence and that he would be able to rightly respond in obedience. So we should too ask for God to reveal his ways to us and that we would respond in obedience with the power of God's presence. And lastly, rest in the powerful presence of God. When we think of the week ahead, what does it look like? And what does it look like in regards to knowing God's presence? Well, for one, if our week is prayerless, we can be sure that we are not experiencing the presence of God. So if you are prayerless, pray. Pray and seek scripture as this is how we encounter the spirit of God. Let us not forget John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this week, when you think of what your week should be marked by, I pray that it would be marked by fruit and fruit by resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. His presence will determine whether this week is fruitful or fruitless, and it hinges upon resting in his presence. Christians have one last charge. We know and have experienced the joys of God's presence. So when we think on the plight of the unbeliever, when we think on the murder, miscarriage, death, and pain, the strife, the seizures, seizures, the strain of this life, are we driven to cry out to God on behalf of the lost? Are we driven to intercessory prayers? Are we not driven to our knees, interceding just as Moses did for, his, for the loved ones, our loved ones, who we believe will feel the eternal judgment, affliction, and wrath and be separated from all goodness that comes from the presence of God. When was the last time we mourned for the lost? If we believe, as Moses believed about the presence of God, we would draw near to him, remember his promises today and tomorrow, reminding each other of his purposes and plead for our people to desire his presence in all the days ahead. I'm helped by Warren Wearsby, who puts it this way. What God the Father planned for you and God the Son purchased for you on the cross, God the Spirit personalizes for you and applies to your life as you yield to him. So church, rest in the presence of God. And if you have yet to know his presence or experience his presence, I would beg of you, run to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise your name. Lord, you have done a great work amongst us. You have sovereignly of yourself chosen a people, redeemed a people, refined a people, and continue to sanctify us unto our victory day. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us through your Holy Spirit and your word of your past and future promises that are for your glory and for our good, that we may walk in them, obey them glad, gladly and joyfully all the days of our life. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.